I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours. I truly hope you're safe and, and above all, healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of virtual conversations on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm really pleased, truly pleased to welcome to the show a friend and colleague of many years, Ambassador David Satterfield. I first met David when we were both uh, working in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. He on temporary assignment. I was doing Lebanon and Palestinians during the very fraught period uh, in the wake of Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982 and the tragedy that followed for the Lebanese and for American policy that followed. David's had a distinguished career in the Foreign Service. I, I won't go into it in detail, only mention that he was appointed Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues on October 15th of last year. Previously, he had served as the U.S. Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa. David has been a U.S. Ambassador to Turkey, Director General of the MFO, the Multinational Force and Observer Organization for Sinai. And his Middle East experience spans almost 40 years and includes assignments in Syria, Tunisia, Saudi Arabia, and, uh, of course, two tours in Lebanon. But what has always impressed me about David, aside from his diplomatic skills, are his analytical skills and his capacity to read the real estate of a complex region, I think, accurately, and to do so with great power and with great prescience. Seeing the world the way it is, I would argue, can be very discouraging, sometimes paralytic. But seeing the world the way it is is critically important if we're going to have any hope of trying to change it. Uh, David, uh, welcome to Carnegie Connects. Happy to be here. We don't have a lot of time, and there's a lot to cover. Uh, before we delve into the details of the uh, current Israeli-Hamas war, I wonder if you might spend a minute giving us a 30,000-foot view of why you and I have agreed on this for weeks now. This crisis is so complex. Our friend and colleague, uh, uh, Bill Burns, CIA director, uh, in 40 years of working the issue, uh, has written that he's rarely seen it more tangled and more explosive. It's now going on for longer than any other uh, Arab-Israeli war, with the exception of the first, 1947 to 1949, and maybe the second intifada. So you've been on the ground now since October. What, Briefly, what, what makes this, this crisis so complicated? Aaron, what happened on the morning of October 7th uh, was a shock, a shock to Israelis, a shock to Israel as a nation, the system and to the fundamental social contract that Israelis have lived by. Uh, since those events of 47 to 49, which is they offer their sons and daughters uh, to the state. Some of them don't come back from the service, but they do so in order to secure for themselves what Bill Clinton famously referred to in the context of Israel and Palestinians as the ability to enjoy a normal life, which President Clinton described as quiet miracle. Well, quiet miracle indeed. Uh, and it's a miracle that's been fundamentally challenged by the, the brutal bestial attacks on October 7th. I can't overstate the impact, the compression of social, political space in Israel uh, across the spectrum of political views by the taking and the continued holding of 134 hostages 
many of whom uh, have perished, uh, but many of whom are alive. The dislocation, the displacement of 200,000 Israelis from the north, threatened by Hezbollah attacks, uh, and from the Gaza corridor, uh, from communities outside of Gaza. This is a continuing trauma in many ways. Uh, a common friend of both of ours said, uh, Israel is always in that morning of October 7th. It needs to move out of that, but it can't happen until several things occur. The hostages have to come out. There has to be a resolution to the security challenge posed in the Gaza area in the north, but something else there. Prime Minister Netanyahu speaks of total victory in the campaign uh, against uh, Hamas. Uh, but, but in the discussions about what total victory means, there, there is a real-world yardstick, a measure that can be applied, and it's twofold. Hamas must, at the end of this conflict, not be able to challenge, to deny governance and administration of the 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza to anybody but themselves. They can't continue to have the ability to be a violent threat uh, to impose their will. That's point one. Point two, they cannot be in a position militarily to ever again rebuild the kind of challenge to Israel and Israelis, to Jews, that manifested on October 7th. Now, those are hard goals. They're being conducted in a campaign environment, Aaron, which is unlike anything the United States uh, with all of our military experience and might have ever had to do. It's a campaign fought in one of the densest populated places on Earth. People can't go to safety to somewhere else. In Mosul, we evacuated over 1, 1.3 million people to safety outside the city before we moved in. There's no such potential here. You have to simply compress, and this is what Israel has done, more and more people to smaller and smaller places. It's an above ground and a below ground campaign. The metro, this vast tunnel network, adds a complexity here which no one anticipated when the campaign began. And finally, Hamas. Hamas is, let's remind ourselves, correctly designated as a terrorist group. They care not a whit about the population, civilian population of Gaza. They've had 17 years in which to embed themselves in, below, among, beside the civilians of Gaza, who they ruthlessly have sacrificed, exposed to harm, in a calculated fashion. How do you achieve those goals, which Israel wants to see done, which we strongly support regarding Hamas? In this kind of environment, it takes time and it takes space. And here we come to my mission. Right. I was just going to say, Dave, that you've been on the ground since October and you've seen the Israeli response, uh, the blockade, uh, the air campaign, which some argue is among the most intense of the 21st century and the ground campaign, which has led to an exponential rise in Palestinian deaths and and what we're now about to discuss, a humanitarian catastrophe for the 2.2, 2.3 million people of Gaza. You have one traumatized community, Israel, living in the shadow of October 7. You have a second traumatized community, which is living in, in, in the shadow of what the Israelis in an effort to destroy Hamas militarily and end its sovereignty in Gaza um, has suffered. So if I were to ask you, um, well, I want to cover three points here. Number one, how would you describe the humanitarian situation 
particularly on, on the issue of health care. Uh, I know you've talked uh, at length about this. Uh, second, what are the obstacles to surging humanitarian assistance? And then finally, I want to close uh, on, on the issue of the U.S. role because I think it's underappreciated. So first on situation, as you see it now in uh, in February, as opposed to where we were on October 21st when there were zero trucks getting into Gaza. Aaron, when uh, Secretary Blinken, I and then the president first came to Israel, uh, 15 through 19 October, what we heard was Gaza's closed down. Not one pencil, not one drop of water, not one drop of fuel is going to enter. Well, that wasn't a sustainable position. And very rapidly, we moved to the extraordinary achievement of 20 trucks of humanitarian assistance a day. That was as of 21 October. That's not all that long ago. Where are we today? Uh, When Nitsana and Kerem Shalom crossings and inspection points are fully open and functioning, that's been a challenge because of demonstrations. We can move 250 to 300 trucks routinely through. What does that number do? What it does is it feeds over 2 million Gazans. It does not give them full nutrition, but it keeps them from starvation. And that's not a modest achievement. It's significant. But it doesn't do more than that. And it is, in the words of the Secretary of the President, it's wholly inadequate. It's a significant achievement, and it's owed to our efforts, but it isn't enough. Much more has to be done. Commercial goods need to come in. Humanitarian assistance needs to flow more evenly, regularly, and in a more secure fashion to all of Gaza, including the north. The north is off limits to virtually everyone. Maybe 250 to 300,000 Gazan civilians are still there. We don't know for certain. Uh, But the north has to be accessed, and there has to be at-scale assistance. That is going to take further progress. But you asked, Aaron, about health. The health situation is miserable. Health facilities have been damaged in this fighting. Uh, It is Hamas, which has utilized these facilities for its own purposes. There's an operation going on as we speak right now at Nasser Hospital. Uh, That operation has, according to Israel, uh, uncovered in the hospital uh, many who were involved in the October 7 attacks, the Nukba forces. But the overall consequence of compressing This extraordinary volume of people in a smaller and smaller place, 1.4, 1.5 million in Rafa, Rafa alone, which had a pre-October 7 population of about 280, 300,000, it creates a crisis of sanitation, of potable water. Feeding can be managed. It's the health implications of this, particularly sanitation, that is critical. We're seeing disease indicators growing. It's winter. There are storms. That creates a further problem when there isn't adequate shelter. And most of these folks don't have adequate shelter. How do you fix this? You decompress this enormous imposed dislocation and you allow folks to go to suitable shelter with humanitarian access and support back to the places they came from or to safer areas. That's easy to say. It is harder to achieve in this environment. I'm assuming, David, that the uh, return to northern Gaza, even though I I had thought several weeks ago there had been limited numbers of Palestinians returning, is is blocked by the Israelis. Is that 
Is that correct? The IDF is still engaged in kinetic activities in Gaza City and other places in the north, despite the campaign that began there uh, in late October. Uh, Hamas has emerged again. Uh, It's fired rockets from Gaza City. Uh, It's challenged the IDF at numerous locations in the north. It's a dangerous place to be. The damage to roads have created a further obstacle. But despite all of this, we have insisted the president, secretary, there's got to be access to to the north, and it's got to be at scale humanitarian assistance provided. Yeah. I'm assuming, if I were to ask you, what is the one key not to solving the humanitarian situation and beginning reconstruction? Um, what is the one key to addressing the situation that now exists on the ground? Is it a extended pause, cessation of military activity for an extended period of time? Is that the single most important change that needs to occur before uh, the international community, uh, UN agencies, I want to get to UNRWA in a minute, uh, can't even hope to do more than feeding uh, 2 million people. Is that the key? It is indeed, Aaron. Without an enduring ceasefire, and that ceasefire must be part of a hostage release, we do not support a standalone a ceasefire. That would be a gift to Hamas. It's not something that we have supported or would support. But a hostage release, which is accompanied by a prolonged ceasefire or rolling extension of ceasefires or pauses, This would give the international community, it would give Israel the opportunity to see the at-scale movement of humanitarian assistance of commercial goods moving throughout all of Gaza. And by the way, it's also an opportunity to begin the, the decompressing of the trauma in Israel as they see their and our citizens come out. It's absolutely essential. Without a ceasefire, Aaron, what we all are doing, the U.S., the international humanitarian community, is dealing around the margins to prevent or mitigate a still worse situation emerging. It's not moving the needle further into the green. Right. Um, I I know you can't talk about the hostage uh, negotiations, let alone the the, uh, nature of the impasse that now separates Israel and Hamas in the negotiations. I'm wondering, though, whether or not Ramadan and Rafa, uh, to some degree, have perhaps begun begun to accelerate the calculations of both Israel and Hamas. And I have to remind myself, despite external pressures from any number of quarters, this conflict has been driven. I have to remind myself of this every single day because the Middle East is littered with the remains of great powers who thought wrongly they could impose their wills on smaller ones. That this is the trajectory of this conflict is driven by. Israeli needs and requirements and Hamas's needs and requirements. And that that's a, that's a very difficult proposition, I think, to accept. But is, is it possible to imagine that um, uh, we could be looking at, uh, I know there's been some progress and I know nothing is certain on this score, but has the urgency in your judgment I'm not asking you to comment on the details. It's the urgency of the situation, which is the one factor that usually brings successful negotiations to a close. Has that increased in your judgment? Without going into the details, Aaron, I believe it has. I believe, we believe um, that a deal is possible. It's not there yet, 
uh, but we see it as an achievable thing. Uh, there are difficult issues involved in concluding that deal, uh, but it can be done. And, and look, Hamas has suffered by this military campaign. There is no question that as Israel has advanced, has entered the tunnels, has gotten much better information on uh, leadership structures, the way they worked, uh, they're feeling squeezed. Uh, so yes, I think there are building pressures. In Israel itself, uh, I think the urgency here is simply a national urgency. People want to see the hostages come out. But I would say they want to see them come out at a price, and there's an understanding there will be a price to be paid, uh, as there have been in previous such situations. But it's a price that has to be commensurate with what is being achieved in terms of, we hope, everyone coming out. Before we leave the assistance question, I've, I've got a couple points I want to raise with you. Number one is uh, uh, UNRWA, uh allegations of complicity of a dozen or so employees, further charges by the Israelis that as many as 10% of the, well, 13,000 normal, during normal periods, UNRWA staff now down to 3,000, um, suspension of assistance by the United States and others. Am I? Can I assume that our position on UNRWA right now is to identify other UN agencies and NGOs, uh, WFP, UNICEF, and others, which we're going to channel our assistance? Several points. First, the executive branch, the administration, has suspended assistance to UNRWA. Second, Congress has made clear um, in the several different uh, legislative vehicles that have emerged from the Senate, that U.S. funding for UNRWA, this is all of UNRWA, uh, will stop. It's not a suspension. It is a prohibition on providing further funding. We believe, third critical point, that the functions performed by UNRWA right now that are relevant to the situation in Gaza, delivery of assistance, logistics, and management of that delivery, the feeding programs that under itself manages as opposed to delivering to others, uh, the system of medical care UNRWA directly provides, its shelter program, those need to be sustained. And the way to sustain them in this situation, given our own suspension, given the congressional uh, so far mandates that UNRWA will not be funded in the future, is to find a way to continue the UNRWA functions. Now, UNRWA and its staff are the largest by far uh, single entity in Gaza for provision of this kind of assistance. Our food program has 70 staff in Gaza. UNRWA has 3,000 engaged in these particular operations, 13,000 overall. We are working aggressively as possible with the UN family, with UN agencies, to see how these key functions can be sustained as we look at the months ahead. But we're not going to fund, you don't have to answer this or respond to it. I'm assuming, given the congressional input here and the nature of our polarized politics, maybe on this issue it's not so polarized among Democrats and Republicans, that um, UNRWA, as far as the United States is concerned, in terms of our direct, our direct support, UNRWA is probably going to be closed for the season. Aaron, that is certainly what we see as congressional bipartisan yeah. intent. Okay, another question, Dave, on diversions. This has been uh, diversion of assistance. 
um, both commercial assistance through Egypt or UN and NGO related assistance. Um, your view, has Hamas been successful at all or do you have any reports, allegations? Has a single Israeli ever approached you and said, David, uh, Hamas is diverting assistance? Maybe unpack that for unpack that for us. No Israeli official has come to me, come to the administration with specific evidence of diversion or theft of assistance delivered by the UN in the center of the south of Gaza. The north's a different story. Since October 21, when assistance resumed. Is there Hamas presence amongst UN staff? Absolutely, without question. Uh, does Hamas have its own interests uh, in using other channels of assistance, Palestinian Red Crescent Society, uh, to shape where and to whom assistance goes? Without question. But the issue of UN formal diversion or theft directly from UN delivered assistance. No such allegations. And that includes um, fuel distribution as well. It includes fuel as well. Millions of liters, millions delivered, thanks to our efforts. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. There was a report last week, I think, in Aritz, which indicated the IDF had fired on uh, Hamas uh, escorts of of trucks into Gaza, killing uh, seven or eight, wounding additional Hamas operatives. Um, Is there any credence to that? Aaron, the IDF, uh, 10 days, two weeks ago, uh, did indeed uh, strike at seven, eight, or nine uh, police officials, including a commander uh, whose units have been involved in providing escort uh, for UN convoys carrying aid. This is a dangerous area. The UN had been attacked uh, first by desperate mobs, then by criminal elements. Uh, They required security. Uh, With those attacks on the police escorts, and let's be clear, when we say police, we mean the de facto a police, which certainly include Hamas elements. They also include individuals who don't have a direct affiliation with Hamas, who are there as part of the Palestinian Authority's remnant presence in security. Um, with the departure of police escorts, it has been virtually impossible for the UN or anyone else, Jordan, the UAE, any other implementer, to safely move assistance in Gaza because of criminal gangs, uh, including today. We are working with the Israeli government, with Israeli military, in seeing what solutions can be found here, because everyone wants to see the assistance continue. No one wants to empower Hamas, but there's a balance here. Um, There is a way ahead which we need to find, which allows for the secure and safe delivery of assistance. We can get it into Gaza, 
we can move hundreds of truckloads of assistance a day over the border to warehouses. What we cannot do right now is see that assistance effectively move to the people of Gaza in a secure and safe manner. Right. So it's not just getting things in, it's within it's delivery within Gaza that absolutely that are, and and you you'd identify criminal gangs and elements as a key as a as a key challenge and problem in this regard. It is the criminal gangs on one side. It is the rising value of humanitarian assistance in the black market uh, because of the inability over these last two weeks. Uh, first, because of demonstrators who closed Karim Shalom and Nitsana. Now, because of the attacks on UN convoys and others, uh, the value of things has risen, which only feeds a vicious cycle to impel more criminal activity. The solution here is to be able to again move at scale. Uh, distribution in a safe and secure manner, that's going to require some form of security escorts to return. Right. Um, I want to move on to the U.S.-Israeli relationship, but um, one last question on assistance. Um, And I realize you're working with the Israelis and the Egyptians. I'm not trying to put you in a difficult position, but to what degree uh, are each of those actors, particularly on the Israeli side, given the toxic environment in Israel against the provision? against the provision of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. For any number of reasons, the Israelis, Israeli press, Israeli television uh, are, are not caring uh, much in the way of, by and large, mainstream Israeli media on the suffering and desperation of Palestinians in Gaza. But to what degree are the Israelis an obstacle to uh, the provision of assistance? There are reports about dual-use items, um, which are done on a pretty arbitrary basis. One day, vitamin powder is put on the list of uh, a prohibitive item or a um, uh, an x-ray machine. Is is that a legitimate uh, charge, David? Aaron, if you asked the vast majority of Israelis and pollsters do uh, what their view is of Gaza, it would not be in support of robust humanitarian assistance to the individuals who, in their view, perpetrated October 7, hold their hostages and who they believe benefit from this assistance. Now, we, the United States, the international community, and the government of Israel have a different view on this, which is providing the maximum degree of humanitarian support under the extraordinarily difficult, challenging circumstances of a kinetic campaign above and below ground, compression of populations, is itself an absolutely critical element in preserving and extending the time and space for the achievement of the strategic objectives in Gaza, which we support, and it is also morally right and correct to do. Let's not instrumentalize wholly humanitarian assistance. It's also the right thing to avoid 2.2 million people, men, women, and children, from suffering when there is a way to mitigate that suffering. That's important too. It's important for Israel, not just today, but for Israel and Israelis into the future, as it is for Americans. Um, All right, so let's move on to the U.S.-Israel relationship. The question I'm asked most frequently, uh, five months in, is president's support for Israel has been extraordinary by any by any standard. 
and many reasons to explain it. Uh, he alone among American presidents feels himself a part of the Israeli story. He's got this unique bond with the people of Israel, the idea of Israel, the security of Israel, uh, not so much for the current government or the current prime minister. But if you had to step back and explain, we've tethered ourselves to Israeli war aims, and it's very hard five months in to fundamentally uh, choose another direction. Um, if you had to, if you had to explain it, um, why this preternatural bond and support for Israel during this crisis, David? I can actually give you on this one a, a pretty straightforward answer, because President Biden believes it is the morally correct thing to do, that the slaughter of Jews on October 7 has to be met with a response. It's not retaliation, it's not revenge, but a response for the sake of the people of Israel and their future that prevents this from ever happening again or anything like it, that prevents Hamas from emerging as the victors here. The president sees not just Israel and its future is tied to that outcome in which Hamas is not able to project itself as the winner. He sees it as important for the region as a whole, and he's absolutely correct to do that, as well as for broader U.S. interests. But at the core, it is because he believes it is the right thing to do. You know, that's a... It's not rare among uh, American presidents, but it's, it, it, it is extraordinary the degree of moral clarity that the president has, has brought to the uh, Israeli trauma. It's harder, and this is where it gets extremely complicated, to bring the same sort of moral clarity, um, not, obviously not to Hamas, but to the suffering, the deprivation, the exponential rise of Palestinian deaths in Gaza. It's a hard sort of balance to to maintain. Um, it is, Aaron. And, and look, it, it is a hard thing to maintain. And I don't use the term balance. I would say it's full moral clarity uh, that looks at all elements of, of this situation. Secretary Blinken has spoken publicly on many occasions directly to this issue. And in his last visit Wednesday, a week ago to Israel, what the secretary said was, every death diminishes us. Every death is a kick in the gut, is a phrase he's used in the past. But he spoke in the last visit about dehumanization. Hamas dehumanized the Israelis, the Jews that it killed on October 7th. It dehumanizes every day the hostages that it holds. But it's critical that Israel and Israelis, the world, we, not dehumanize the innocent civilians or Palestinians more broadly of Gaza and beyond. Those who want uh, a much tougher administration response um, to uh, this war with respect to Israeli actions and conduct um, want the administration to exercise the leverage uh, that it on paper clearly has slow walking or restricting military assistance, changing the U.S. voting pattern in New York, um, abstaining or voting for you in Security Council resolution, creating even uh, a, a sustained public frame 
by the president that uh, Israel's conduct and behavior is undermining the nature of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. None of none of those things have happened. And, you know, my own sense, and I'd like you to react uh, to this, is that beyond the emotional support, beyond the domestic political repercussions, and it works both ways, progressive Democrats are alienated, President's caught between a Republican Party, that is the Israel can do no wrong party, and a divided Democratic Party, um, is the practical reality that without Israeli agreement to the one um, factor that would um, cease military uh, activity, surge humanitarian assistance, release the hostages, that in the end, making a pariah out of Benjamin Netanyahu denies the administration what it really needs, David, which is an Israeli-Hamas deal. Without that, I don't see where U.S. policy toward this entire conflict goes. How much of the restraint on the part of the administration is because of this, we talked about this earlier, but because of the investment trap that we are in, that the Israelis are in, that Palestinians are in. How much of it is a practical recognition, whatever his personal relationship uh, and view of Benjamin Netanyahu, that that, is, that agreement is essential? Aaron, this is much bigger in terms of the calculations that, that the president, I would say any president has to make in this circumstance than, than a personal relationship. It, it has to do with what is effective in achieving the goals of eliminating or reducing, degrading Hamas's ability uh, to remain the, the governing force in Gaza, to remain a threat to Israel, to the region as a whole. Getting the hostages out is absolutely essential. There can't be a higher priority right now for Israel or for us, then achieving the release of the hostages, all of the hostages. Everything else is, is subordinate to or, or secondary to that critical goal. And the president concludes, rightly, I certainly believe, that to threaten the fundamental uh, pillar of support right now for Israel, uh, our military assistance, would both be wrong to do in a, in a moral sense, but also uh, absolutely counterproductive to the objectives we want to achieve. What would it give to Hamas to see that kind of step taken? It would give assurance. It would give a breath of life. This is not something we want or, or will do. But isn't it the key to the proverbial day after, as well as the administration's uh, broader planning on time, making sure that Gaza first cannot be Gaza only, that is to say, tethering the day after. I'm not sure there's going to be a day after. I suspect it'll be, it won't be a bright line dividing the end of Israeli military activity from a period of, of uh, sustained stability, I, I, I doubt. But isn't that what the I mean, aside from everything you've said, isn't it a practical reality that without the Israeli Hamas deal. You don't get extended quiet. You can't surge humanitarian assistance into Gaza. You can't free the hostages. You can't create political space in Israel. 
And there is no prospect uh, between now and November of any broader initiative having any resonance, either attracting key Arab states or, as difficult as it's going to be, attracting much support, certainly from the current Israeli government or from a successor government. Isn't, isn't that deal critical to achieving, paving the way for a, a, broader, a broader future? Aaron, all of my efforts are focused on trying to take us to a day before that offers the possibility, the hope of a day after. With all of those things you talk about, a hostage release, the attendant extended ceasefire, it's absolutely critical to getting all of those things that make that day before, hard as it is, possible so that you've got a chance of getting to the much more difficult day after propositions. Yeah, you, you cannot flip the sequence, but I want to be very clear here. There's much chatter in the press about an elaborate complex of arrangements that the U.S. sees hostage releases as, as a subordinate element of a deal on Palestinian statehood or on the Saudi deal with Israel. Let me unpack that for a moment. It is getting the hostages out. It is getting an enduring ceasefire that is attendant to that rolling release. It's getting humanitarian assistance in, and it is seeing if a greater stabilization of the situation on the ground can be achieved that allows the broader aims with respect to Hamas's threats and challenge to be achieved, that time and space that I spoke of. That's what's most important. All those other good things are out there in some more distant sense, but you will never get to them, minus the priority of getting the hostages out. I mean, you and I know, based on our own experiences with Middle East negotiations, that they tend to have two speeds, uh, slow and slower. Uh, that's clearly proven the case with respect to uh, any deal on hostages between Israel and Hamas, and it's more more likely, most likely, to prove true in terms of any creating any broader frame uh, for the future. Um, we've talked about Israel and Hamas, and I know this is not your brief, David, but I wonder if you could offer a few comments on the regional piece of this. Some people argue we are now in the midst of a regional war. I. I don't see it that way, although it's quite an extraordinary situation where you have these multi-fronts, the Houthis threatening shipping in the Red Sea, pro-Iranian militias uh, threatening American assets and personnel in Iraq and Syria, and a hot, by any standard, Israel-Lebanese border that has been maintained, has maintained a certain escalatory threshold, which has prevented a broader conflict, which actually just might get you into a regional war, including a conflict between the United States and Iran. But I wonder if you could offer any comment on the regional dimension of this uh, and the administration's concept of, of deterrence. Sure. And let me start by saying the administration correctly does not see a regional conflict as inevitable uh, or even likely. Uh, and that starts with the situation in the north. Let's talk about what didn't happen on October 7th. Neither Iran nor Hassan Nasrallah, 
chose this moment, I suspect the great disappointment of Yahya Sinwar, uh, to launch a full-out offensive against Israel. They did something else. They undertook symbolic steps uh, through Hezbollah, rocketing of the northern border, uh, to show solidarity uh, as part of the axis of resistance. Now, that rocketing, which has expanded in scope and volume and has caused fatalities, is a dangerous undertaking. It's a dangerous undertaking because it assumes that both sides understand exactly what the other side intended when they did something and can respond in scale and appropriately and in a non-escalatory manner. There's a risk that somebody makes a mistake. Someone makes a miscalculation in all of this. Uh, And there is certainly a risk and danger there. I don't want to suggest there isn't. But it is far from uh, the perhaps anticipated by Hamas uh, opening of multiple full-blown fronts on Israel. It didn't happen. Instead, what has happened, and it should not come as a surprise to anyone who has watched the PMFs, the Hashid al-Shabi, the Iranian proxy forces in Iraq and Syria, or the Houthis in Yemen, that there's been a instrumentalization of these proxies by terror for a more distal attack pressurization of the situation to show they're there. It's not just station identification. It's more than that. Uh, The Houthi attacks on shipping are highly dangerous, and indeed they have invited, after a considerable period of restraint, a response. The popular mobilization forces, the Iranian proxy elements in Iraq, have caused U.S. fatalities, serious injuries, and retaliation is now taking place there as well in what Secretary Austin and others have said will be a rolling uh, process which we will not announce in advance. None of this means a regional war or conflict is inevitable. It means that Iran is using its assets in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, and Nasrallah and Hezbollah to both signal it is solid with Hamas, but perhaps in a way that Tehran believes will not bring retaliation directly on themselves. That is is a tale yet to be fully told. If Iran persists in these attacks, the risk is always there that they will do something which absolutely requires a more direct as opposed to indirect U.S. response. I'll go back to October 19th, the president in Israel. The president spoke to this whole issue. For those in the region who would take advantage, who would instrumentalize this situation in Gaza, I got a word for you. Right. Don't, don't, don't. Right. Let me ask you an insider question. It's been reported in the press that during the first several days uh, following the uh, <clears throat> October 7th, uh, Hamas terror surge that the Israelis were seriously considering preempting Hezbollah with a major operation, and that uh, that did not occur in large part because uh, President Biden uh, turned it off. Can you comment on that at all? When I said we do not see a regional conflict as inevitable <laughs> or even likely, what that means is the utmost, the highest degree of coordination exchange of information, dialogue with Israel to ensure there's no misinterpretation of information. There is no unintended escalatory step taken 
And that has certainly been our position since October 8th. And I won't go beyond that. Right. I, I understand. Look, David, uh, first of all, thanks for everything you've done. It's If anyone had a Mission Impossible, it was you. Uh, starting with zero trucks on October 21st to 250 to 300, it's far cry from what is required, but it's something. And frankly, David, I would suggest humbly that if it wasn't for President Biden's intercession on the humanitarian side, there might be absolutely no aid uh, getting to Gaza. You were part of that. Let me take a moment, though, in closing, reinforce what you just said. You know, we're accused of not doing enough. We accept that. President, Secretary Blinken, Jake have all said it's not enough. It's not adequate. We admit. We acknowledge. Look what we've done. We have moved from zero millions of liters to fuel, fuel to hospitals, to bakery, thousands of metric tons of flour as a result of our funding, our efforts, moved to feed 2.2 million people in Gaza. Karim Shalom is opened as a critical point of inspection and movement of goods. A channel from Jordan has been established. None of this would have been possible without our sustained leadership and our willingness to go at it morning and night, working with partners in the region, partners in Israel, to make this possible against extraordinary countervailing forces, which we understand, we fully understand, but the imperative of doing all we can do, inadequate though it may be on the humanitarian front, it's intrinsic to all of those broader strategic goals. Uh, David, let me thank you for sharing your time and your expertise. I know you're, you're headed back um, and um, we all wish you well. Um, thanks again for, for everybody, to everybody for their participation. And David, thank you so much and safe travels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash carnegieconnects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.